Welcome to episode 46 of Battle Rhythm, the Canadian podcast that tells you what you need to know on security and defense. I'm Stephanie Van Hladke, and my co-host, Steve Zaidman, will join me shortly. In today's episode, we talk about the sexual misconduct and assault allegations against Vice Admiral Edmondson. We also discuss Chinese ships swarming the South China Sea and the increasingly deadly crackdown in Myanmar. Our feature interview is with Dr. Bastian Giegrich, who is the Director of Defense and Military Analysis at the International Institute for Strategic Studies in London. At the very end of the episode, we have Steve's R&R segment. Thank you for listening. Hello, Stephanie, how are you doing in the aftermath of a very busy Easter? Oh, it was a fun Easter. I had such a good time and the weather was really beautiful. So we got some air as well. How was your Easter, uh, Steve, or your long weekend? Did you eat a lot of chocolate like the rest of us? As a matter of fact, yes, I did make uh, totally chocolate chocolate chip cookies, uh, Nigella Lawson recipe, and it worked out really well. And it even works out better if you warm them up and then put ice cream and then chocolate sauce and caramel on it make it kind of a brownie sundae because <laughs> cookie is much more like a brownie than it is like a cookie it was good that sounds good except right now i can't even think about eating <laughs> chocolates it's just too much uh and we have a, a busy week too today so you may have chocolate fuel left over for your many many isa panels and appearances you have an incredibly busy isa week right Yes, I do. The, usually the International Studies Association, you know, we go to it, we, we wall off our lives. We just spend, uh, you know, four or five days someplace. Last year would have been Hawaii. This year it would have been Vegas. And you can just sort of crowd out, you know, just don't do anything else besides a conference. But the conference online these days means you're juggling the conference with your class, with the other meetings we have, with the rest of our lives. So it's it's a bit a bit harder to keep track of things. But I'm doing better this time. The American Political Science Association meeting last fall, I showed up late to my own panel where I was the chair. So that, because I got the time zone stuff wrong. So mm. this morning, the Civ Mill people had a comparative Civ Mill panel. Uh, we had papers on Lebanon, Africa, Japan, and the United States. And I presented with uh, a couple of colleagues, a new survey that just just kicked out the results of the last couple of weeks on uh, Japan and uh, public attitudes about oversight over the self-defense forces and trust in the self-defense forces. So, and we got really good feedback from Erica De Bruin and Risa Brooks. So uh, look for that at a journal anytime in the near future. Hmm, it'll take a while, but, and then I've got three other panels. People should tell me what I should be saying tomorrow at the panel on Canadian foreign policy, because I have no idea what I'm going to be talking about. What's your role on, on that uh, panel or roundtable? Just the first person to start talking at the roundtable. I don't know why I got to go first. I'm the least published on Canadian foreign policy of people on the panel, but I got to go first. So I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to say yet. I'll have, I'll figure that out. I'm also a discussant on Thursday, and I'm also the chair of an, a panel honoring Mark Trattenberg for the Lifetime Achievement Award for the International Security Studies section. So it's a very, very busy ISA. While I still have class on Friday and I still have class to, Tomorrow night. No, tonight. Oh, wait. Today's Tuesday. Uh, I have a class tonight. Uh, we got to make sure that in the future we don't tape this, this these episodes on uh, on Tuesdays, or at least I don't have that class on Tuesdays before we tape podcast episodes on Tuesdays and release them on Wednesdays. That that is not a good battle rhythm for me. And then it's grading season is upon us almost. Uh, how are you handling uh, the end of the term? It's it's going well. I'm teaching my last seminar tomorrow on, on Wednesday, which is why I'm dodging the Canadian Foreign Policy Roundtable. I just <laughs> don't feel comfortable skipping out on the last class, especially not for a virtual event. And there's many more people who can uh, contribute on this roundtable, so I don't feel too bad. But I look forward to meeting the students for one last time tomorrow and then uh, sending them off on their summer holiday. Well, at least soon enough, they've got one last assignment to do. And that means an intense grading period for me in April, but then it all wraps up and, and we get to refocus on research and planning for various events that we'll be holding 
holding next fall, whether it's the CDSN or the Réseau d'Analyse Stratégique or the CIDP, KCIS, it's going to be a busy year next year. And I'm hoping that at least some of these events can be held in person, but still being, being very cautious and risk averse when it comes to planning for at least the fall events. So that's what's uh, occupying my, my headspace. And of course, we'll be continuing on with our battle rhythm over the summer, which should be easier right? Because you won't be teaching over the summer on, on Tuesdays. So we'll be able to convene at a more leisurely pace to have these conversations as we are going to be a, a bit freer in our schedule now that teaching will be done. That and we won't be traveling. You know, the previous summers doing the battle rhythm has been hard because we've been in different time zones. And uh, I don't think either of us have any summer travel plans. So I, at least that that bit of complication will not not be a problem anytime too soon. No, I'll only be camping in Ontario, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> you say with such great thrills. I, I'm sure you're the one motivating it and not the boys. I love camping so much. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you got to fake it better. <laughs> you're a good mom. All right. Well, time to move on to a tougher topic topic of the sexual assault allegations against Vice Admiral Edmondson. Have you been tracking this story as closely as I have? Probably not quite as close as you have, but uh, pretty closely. I mean, the idea that the guy who's in charge of personnel, which includes handling sexual harassment, sexual misconduct, has been accused of quite severe allegations uh, is very disturbing. That he had a, a nickname of Mulligan Man for having gotten a second chance to have a career after, after getting severe allegations early in his career and having that carry with him all the way. I mean, that's the kind of strike that should, on your record should either, if you not get you kicked out of the military, prevent you from being named an admiral and particularly being named a, a three-star admiral that is in charge of personnel. So I'm sure this was pretty disturbing to you. Yeah, same uh, same reaction. And of course, the irony isn't lost on me that uh, he was the one who oversaw the directorate that provides advice on administering career consequences for those accused of sexual misconduct and the CAF. You know, you look at what the military personnel priorities are, and they include the Hyderabadi class action lawsuit against the Canadian Armed Forces for sexual assault. But you also see priorities like recruitment and retention initiatives. And, you know, I can't think of a worst spokesperson in this case for promoting these various uh, initiatives. So yeah, I was I was tracking closely and also very touched and, and upset reading the story from uh, Stephanie Vio, you know, the woman who came forward and saying that no one came to her defense and that she didn't speak up at the time because she just didn't feel safe on that ship. And that just breaks my heart because, you know, obviously there's one individual, you know, who's being targeted by these allegations, but the story really speaks to, you know, the broader command climate on board where peers are clearly aware of and tolerate sexual misconduct and much worse in the story shared by View. And, you know, you, you put yourself in her shoes, uh, you know, this happened when she was really young and this feeling of being isolated in the middle of the ocean, but also the fear of being socially and professionally isolated on the ship. I think it must be just the worst feeling, not only having suffered what she went through, but also feeling like she might be punished for speaking out in that situation. So yeah, it's it's upsetting to, to read and it does take a, a toll, you know, and, and I think for the organization, it's just one more military leader whose uh, reputation is being tarnished. But here, I mean, we're talking about violence, sexual assault, and, and rape. So it's it's in another category from the, the discussions we've been having thus far. And if this doesn't, you know, shake the calf to the core, you know, I don't know what will. And to put that in the same context. This also puts another stain on John Vance's record because he was a guy who promoted Edmondson to this position. And so what was Vance's judgment if he's putting somebody up who has this reputation, who has this mark on his record? You know, maybe the calf is small that there's not that many people to choose for all these different posts, but you would think that this is the kind of reputation and mark that would prevent somebody from being made, you know, a, again, a, a three-star officer that, that Vance... I think was the one who made the call on putting Edmonds in this position. And, and so that again suggests that fans had 
poor judgment, that he didn't do due diligence to vet the people who are at the top. This is somebody who should never have made it to Admiral in the first place. And then to make it all the way from one star to three star is just appalling. Yes, watching the the survivor talk about her experience, it was quite compelling. And it, you know, the, there has to be accountability for the stuff and it has to start at the top and we still haven't seen it. I, I know I've been beating the same drum for the past, what, six or eight weeks now, but the Minister of Defense needs to go. It's his, it's his job to make sure that this stuff runs well and it's not running well. And he had opportunities along the way to make things better and he chose not to. And now more than ever with Edmondson, with McDonald, with Vance, we need to have a signal sent to the force that civilians and military at the top of the chain of command are responsible and are, are accountable for this. Because if you're somebody who has a lot of power in the organization and you are immune, if you have impunity, then that sends a message to everybody else that they could keep on doing what they're doing. Or that sends the message that there's a double standard, which also delegitimates the standards that, are, that people are trying to set. So there needs to be serious action at the top. And I think that the accusations that came out against McDonald mean that McDonald's not becomes not going to return to being the, the chief of defense staff. So the next conversation is going to have to be about whether General Eris stays as, as CDS or whether he gets replaced by Lieutenant General Francis Allen or by somebody else. So that's that's the next step. But we live in a very painful time for the CAF. And it's not going to get any better until there's some serious consequences that are meted out for the people at the top. So let's move to the South China Sea. The Navy made news as one of our ships sailed through the South China Sea near some of the islands that are contested by the Chinese. So that that raised the visibility of the South China Sea in uh, Canadian mines uh, recently. There's a lot of other stuff going on these days. There's China comes up in the interview I have with Bastian Gierich today. The Philippines is currently contesting China having something like 200 ships that have militia on them hanging out in Philippines territorial waters. Indonesia and Japan just signed a, a, a military deal that is the first time they've ever done anything like that. And so that was clearly aimed at China. So a lot of things are going on these days involving the South China Sea and the countries around it. Do you have any thoughts on this, Beth? Yeah, I was uh, looking at that as well. Uh, and this tactic of Chinese ships swarming the South China Sea region. And it looks to me like it's uh, the equivalent of Russia's little green men, but in the sea with these uh, maritime militia disguised as fishing vessels and claiming they're sticking together because of uh, poor conditions, poor weather conditions, which doesn't seem uh, credible at all. And uh, I think everyone's seeing through that. But when the uh, UN Convention on the Law of the Sea has found you know, no legal basis for most of China's claims in the South China Sea. And when, you know, they're diplomatically isolated over this issue, they, they resort to those types of tactics. I know the, the U.S. has no official position on the South China Sea disputes per se, but definitely has called out China for its aggressive behavior and for increasing its military presence in the region. And now, you know, Canada is doing the same in terms of sending a warship for uh, patrolling the area, you know, whether it's a gesture of support for its partners and allies or just picking the shortest route. I think it's probably just convenient to do both. But of course, there's been much talk about this as it is seen as perhaps presenting a risk of aggravating Canada's diplomatic standoff with China over the, the two Michaels and the Wanzu affair. So well, I don't know. Do you think Canada is right to stick by you know, the U.S. and regional allies and partners, or perhaps Canada should uh, be more risk averse and take a detour? Well, the interesting thing about this from my perspective is that Canada's position on law of the sea in the South China Sea is a little different than China, uh, Canada's position on law of the sea in the Northwest Passage, because uh, Canada uh, disagrees with the law of the sea about, about how ships can go through the Northwest Passage. But the Northwest Passage is a lot more really Canadian in terms of how the, the islands enclose it rather than the historical basis for the nine dash line the Chinese refer to as, as the Ch South China Sea belonging entirely to China. This conflict with the Philippines and with Indonesia and Japan has been brewing for quite some time. And the island building process has aggravated it. And now that they're basing these little green ships, as I'll start calling them, thanks to you. In these, you know, new ports they have on these rocks that have become islands, it's just it amped up the tensions. And I can't help but think that the Chinese are making a big mistake here, that they think that the more they push countries around, the more they'll submit. And that is a, a belief that has long existed in international relations. But the realists are right. Countries tend to balance power. And you're seeing that. So Indonesia and Japan are now developing agreements aimed at China. This is not something that you would have expected 10 
10 or 15 or 20 years ago, because there are the historical memories of World War II that the places that Japan invaded long ago don't look kindly upon uh, Japan, but Indonesia is now reaching out. And that's because Indonesia, like Japan, needs as many allies and friends as it can have in the region when China is making claims to not, you know, to the waters up to and, and you know, basically touching the territory, the, the physical, the the islands of Indonesia, that this bullying behavior is going to produce a backlash. I think China had a real moment there where they could have twisted and cajoled and seduced Duarte of the Philippines as part of the brotherhood of not so democratic countries. And that would have facilitated China's ability to break out and be able to sail ships through and around the Philippines into the greater Pacific. But instead, these campaigns they have of these swarming ships is just driving the Philippines further and further away. So I think China lost an opportunity there. And so we're going to see more countries banding together. And I think Canada is part of that. I think it makes sense for Canada to, to sail its ships, the short route that is perfectly legal by international law to demonstrate that it is not going to be intimidated. You know, there's been a lot of discussion in Canada about whether we're too weak on China, whether we should be more aggressive on Ch- against China. And I, I don't want to have the Canada antagonize China unnecessarily because China is overreacting to pretty much everything. But I also think we shouldn't underreact. And I don't think we should um, become de- demure and shy around the Chinese because the Chinese overreact. We need to do what is normal and not overreact in either direction. I think Sending ships through the South China Sea is something that we used to do. It's something that is done by other countries. It's not it's normal behavior. It should continue. It's it's also going to send a message that that we're not going to be utterly cowed by hostage di- diplomacy. No, well said, well said. And and uh, while we're talking about underreacting versus overreacting, do you want to move on to our third topic, which probably is an example of underreacting in response to uh, Myanmar's uh, violent uh, military crackdown against peaceful protesters? Sure. The UN Special Rapporteur was critical of the UN Security Council, saying that the UN Security Council is being irrelevant in this conflict. Myanmar has engaged in behavior against the, the Myanmar military has engaged in behavior against its public that in the olden days of maybe 10 years ago might have invoked responsibility to protect. That is, the government of Myanmar is not handling its job of keeping people safe in in Myanmar. And if it fails to do so, the international community has a responsibility to ensure the safety of the people of Myanmar, but the international community is not really stepping up here because in part, you can't get a decision through the Security Council because the Chinese and the Russians are going to block anything. So Canada has issued statements. Surprisingly, Singapore has issued a statement when Singapore tends to be very quiet Mm -hmm. on these things. The United States, Secretary of State Blinken has, has made statements on this, but I'm not sure that anything is going on besides random statements. Have you observed any kind of real behavior that might cause the, the, the military Myanmar to think twice about this? Well, it's it's certainly not coming from the, the Security Council because there's opposition from a few consequential countries, especially China and, and Russia. And so you won't see a united Security Council on this issue. I don't think they'll always be stopping short of really meaningful com- condemnation and action. And I, I'm like you, when I heard the UN Special Envoy on Myanmar talk about an imminent bloodbath, my mind immediately went to R2P, thinking back that really exactly a year ago, we were looking at the first month of intervention of NATO in Libya, invoking the principle of of R2P after uh, UN diplomacy in in February and March of uh, 2011. So it's uh, interesting to be revisiting this concept 10 years later uh, with the situation in Myanmar. And of course, you know, when we think R2P, we might think back to Libya and think of a military intervention, but there's other tools that are possible and that should be uh, looked at more more closely when it comes to invoking R2P, but, you know, obviously not entertaining the, the idea of a military intervention, which, you know, wouldn't work in this context. But any strong signal that would allow for the, the protest and the civil disobedience to, you know, maintain their activity and maybe change the calculus for the military regime, because I think that's the only pathway right now for a resolution of this situation. And we don't want the the protests to feel isolated. So any signal, I think that the international community can send in individual countries, and and certainly uh, you've mentioned a a few countries that have spoken up about these these issues and sent signals of support for the protesters, building on that over time and sustaining those types of diplomatic statements and adoption of sanctions 
violence and so on, that can keep the anti-coup protesters going. And as, as I just mentioned, change the calculus for, for the military regime. Well, one of the interesting statements that did come out was that we had the Chads, the chief of defenses, the four-star generals, essentially, and admirals running many of the world's militaries. United States, Canadian, I think British, Australian, a bunch of them. I, I, I didn't get a complete list of, of, the, of the countries who signed, but you had sort of a mill-to-mill conversation where the, the military leaders of the world basically were trying to speak to the military leaders in Myanmar saying, this is not professional military behavior. This is bad for your military. You should stop doing this. Be a good military, protect your citizens. I mean, I thought it was an interesting effort and it was the least they can do. But again, one of the problems of, with Myanmar is, is that it's a country that's not really well integrated in the international economy. So there's there's limits on the sanction, the, how punishing the sanctions could be. There's not quite as autarkic as North Korea, but it's not as plugged into the international economy as most of its neighbors. And so it limits how much leverage we have. And nobody is in the mind to have military intervention. So it's really a matter of talking tough, but not really having too many sticks to back it up. The, the age of intervening, I think, is over for the time being, certainly not during the middle of the pandemic, and certainly not after, you know, we, have, we still haven't ended most of our forever wars. So you're just not going to see that kind of intervention in, in Myanmar. Mm-hmm. I mean, the biggest stick that could be wielded in this case is some kind of arms embargo. I know that certain R2P influencers like Gareth Evans, one of the architects of R2P, have been talking about, you know, not only this uh, kind of diplomatic naming and shaming, but you know, targeted sanctions, perhaps embargoes and uh, threats of ICC prosecution. So there are some tools in that are available short of, of military intervention. But, but I think you're right, the kind of more forceful response is just a little bit beyond reach at the moment. Well, I think that's all we got for this week. Hopefully there'll be a happy crisis in two weeks so we can talk about some good news somewhere because today's content outside of our chocolate banter was not too uplifting, unfortunately. But uh, tell me a little bit more about your interview with uh, Bastian Gigerich. Maybe that'll lift up the moods before we part ways. Sure. Bastian is the director of the Defense and Military Analysis at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. IISS is the leading think tank on the military balance. In fact, they have a publication called The Military Balance. And they do a really good job of assessing the state of play of where the defense dollars are going and whether it's producing better militaries. And so we talked about whether China was really getting much output for its money, whether the ships they were building or the military was building was, was actually significantly better than the previous stuff. We talked about where Russia is these days, really are the best reference works on the state of play of defense spending around the world and what the military is the world are up to these days. And your R&R segment is bound to be uplifting too, right? Well, let me ask you this a question. Uh, I, I don't know if you're old enough to remember Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Is that a movie that, that you saw when you were younger? Nope. <laughs> well, uh, I talk a little bit about the concluding of their trilogy that nobody knew was a trilogy until this past year. Bill and Ted face the music. We're both very, very busy, but I appreciate you taking the time at the talk. Good luck in managing your grading. If our listeners haven't already heard it, grading is the worst job of professing bar none. And so uh, once we get past that, then the long Canadian summer can start. Yes. And what I'm most excited about this spring, it's not the grading, but it's a dissertation defense. That's always a huge celebration. I know for dissertation defenses in 2020 and 2021, having them online doesn't convey the same kind of uh, feeling or celebratory mood, but that's what I'm most looking forward to this this spring and summer. There's a few lined up. So, you know, similar to grading, but uh, a whole lot better uh, because it's the culmination of uh, really hard work. And, you know, in addition to that, I will catch up on your entertainment recommendations. Good luck this week with ISA. And it's a very busy one for you, much busier for you than it is for me with your many panels and roundtables. And I look forward to speaking with you in a couple of weeks. Sounds good. Welcome to Battle Rhythm Bastion. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Steve, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, my name is Bastian Gigerich. I'm the director of the Defensive Military Analysis Program at the IISS, the International Institute for Strategic Studies, uh, headquartered in uh, London. I've been in that role now for uh, about six years and previously spent a couple of years in the German Ministry of Defense and Policy and Research roles. Excellent. And 
I came to know IISS mostly because of the big publications they roll out every year that document uh, the state of play. So I understand that the latest military balance is coming out. So can you tell us a little bit what you did and what you found? Yeah, sure. The military balance is a publication that we that we publish uh, once a year in, in book form and then as an electronic database that comes with it that is called the Military Balance Plus. And it is an assessment of what we think is going on in terms of global military capabilities and defense economics. We cover 171 countries around the world as a team of about 20 people working on it at the ISS. So that is something that keeps us pretty busy most of the time. We just published the 2021 edition yesterday on the 25th of February to have already started working on the 2022 edition. So it is a gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> and uh, so so that's what we do. Uh, that's the core of what we do. And then the, the team, the defense team at the ISS also does a whole bunch of uh, research projects and consulting projects that, you know, with government and private sector that, that touch upon, upon the themes that we work on in the military balance. And so in this year's report, what did you find to be some of the most striking results? Yeah, I mean, there, there are like three storylines that, that that I think one can pull out. I mean, it is a very data-rich book, so there's, there's too much to, to convey in, in, in a conversation. But three storylines we, we pulled out from the many that are there. One is on defense spending, one is on Chinese military modernization, and the third one is, is on you know, what you might call further and faster, the hypersonics uh, issue. And and so on, on, on defense spending, I think it's a really interesting time. Of course, uh, we all know that the pandemic will affect global defense spending, but, you know, the really tricky period, of course, will probably come around 2022 to 2023, as there's always a lag till those economic effects, broader economic effects filter through to defense spending. And so for 2020, what was interesting, perhaps a bit counterintuitive, uh, what we found is that notwithstanding the 3.5% of contraction in global economic output, defense spending actually increased to now reach globally 1.83 trillion US dollars. So growing by about 3.9% uh, in real terms compared to 2019. So you've got economy going down and 2020, at least defense spending continuing to rise. And in, in relation to NATO is that, you know, the world now meets NATO's 2% <laughs> target, even though NATO, most NATO members still don't. But that's that's just one of the interesting stories that was that was in there. Uh, we've then also looked a little bit uh, in, in more detail, of course, what, what happened in various regions of the world. Defense spending in Asia now accounts for about 25% of the total global spending. China's year-on-year -year increase was, the magnitude, a nominal increase was about 12 billion US dollars just year-on-year. -year. Uh, obviously, that's a significant number, and it's greater than the combined defense spending increases of all other co countries in Asia. So you have that moment where the the gap between what China spends and what the rest of Asia spends together is actually narrowing. Uh, what we are seeing is actually quite a significant uptick in Chinese capability. So just to point out a few examples that we looked at in this year's uh, military balance, you know, for example, Beijing seems intent to achieve primacy in its littoral areas. And, and if you look at uh, the People Liberation Army's Navy, you know, the, how, how it has maintained an over, over the horizon presence, including paramilitary, maritime paramilitary forces, but then also seeing how its own uh, capability has grown uh, that is in, indeed quite impressive. Uh, China's corvettes have more than doubled in number in the last five years. They're now at 55. And, and while there's that modernization, or, or rather that while there is that growth, uh, there's also a retirement of legacy platforms. So, so they are actually swapping out old for new and growing at the same time. They're working on improved anti-submarine warfare capability. The number of uh, large and amphibious vessels has, has doubled to six now since since 2015 so also in the last five years it will rise further when they have the new type uh, 075 amphibious assault ships uh, coming on which the first ones are now being commissioned uh, they launched the eighth of their type 55 cruisers 25th of the type 52d destroyer so there's lots going on there mm -hmm. uh, they are working on a third aircraft carrier so some of this is coming through and then and then what is also interesting it's not just that growth uh, in, in those kinds of platforms, but also progress on enablers, another important part. So stuff that would support military operations at range. Fleet support ships are up, number of fleet support ships is up. The number of heavy transport aircraft has effectively doubled in the last four years. Uh, so that's that upward trajectory that really suggests to us that there's a desire to boost support and sustainment alongside combat power as, mm -hmm. as a raw 
category. So, so there's that modernization and that power projection capability growth uh, that one can see. The other interesting things, of course, when one talks about Chinese capability is, is the need to still improve uh, military training and, you know, and, and on the Chinese side, working on, on jointness. Uh, so all of that will ultimately be as important. But uh, the stuff is coming through, uh, and it is coming through in numbers that might look puzzling to uh, procurement officers in, in some uh, nations in the Euro-Atlantic uh, realm. But they are, they are progressing at speed, and they are, of course, progressing uh, with purpose. And then in Europe, of course, we have that notion that governments made a conscious point to protect defense spending in 2020. And provide a 2% real terms increase. On current budget plans for 2021, Europe looks set to be the fastest growing region in the world uh, in defense spending terms. Now, that is obviously based on the assumption that governments are actually coming through with the plans that they have announced. And so I guess that leads to the big question, which is, do the Europeans perceive China as a threat that the Americans certainly are, right? We have uh, Joe Biden coming to office and his rhetoric isn't, you know, it might be a little different than Trump's, but it's clear that that they see China as a big threat. And, and the concern on this side of the Atlantic is whether the Europeans are willing to cooperate with the United States in, in not necessarily confronting China, but in dealing with the Chinese problem as opposed to, uh, I guess the question is, how do Europeans see this threat? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really interesting one. I, I think I think Europeans now understand that for the U.S., China is, has been, and will remain the pacing threat for the time being. And in a way, therefore, you know, that duality, that relationship between the U.S. and China arguably is the most important bilateral uh, defense relationship in the world uh, in, in many ways. So I think there's that understanding. There's that understanding that, that this also means, by extension then, that Europe or the Euro-Atlantic is no longer the primary uh, or even one of the two primary theaters uh, that the U.S. Uh, is focused on. So I think that understanding Understanding is there, and you will have seen a number of nations publishing Indo-Pacific strategy papers in Europe. Um, you know, including Germany, uh, Netherlands, uh, France, and others. And they are all very different, though, in in terms of focus, and in particular in terms of how closely they're integrated with defense thinking. So, what I think, what would be fair to say is that most Europeans uh, have come fairly late to this conversation, have woken up in the last 18 to 24 months to the fact that uh, China uh, is much more than a potential partner and a an economic competitor, but is actually a systemic rival and in some areas also an actual threat. That is new in the European conversation. That is that is really something that has taken on speed in 2020. Uh, it is not universally shared. You get differences of, of opinion and you get differences of preparedness in terms of, you know, uh, investment screening mechanisms, uh, in terms of willingness to uh, look at Chinese involvement in, in European economic affairs and, and otherwise. So that all differs. Uh, the question is, uh, of course, what are Europeans willing to do to perhaps contribute to, I think the right term is probably constraining China rather than uh, anything else. Uh, I think uh, if, we t if we talk in a more narrow sense uh, in terms of defense capability to make available in an Indo-Pacific contingency, uh, I think the reality is that Europeans are very limited. I think most Europeans seem to think that a useful contribution would be strengthened European capabilities to make sure that when or if the U.S. is, is pulled into a conflict with China, that the European periphery, Europe itself and the European periphery, can be secured by European capabilities alone, or hopefully with some Canadian. But there's that thinking that a contribution to that conversation is Europeans giving a signal to the US that, uh, they, that the US has to worry less about stability in Europe if it is pulled into Asia Pacific. Then there are a few voices that are saying, well, Europe really needs to do more. That, of course, currently takes the form of, for example, a maritime presence uh, in that part of the world via France and, and the UK primarily. Mm -hmm. And then others in support, uh, Germany has plans to do the same, uh, but that is a limited, it's a useful signal, but it's a, it's a very limited signal. So different views, I think a growing understanding of the mm -hmm. issue, but not yet that really coherent position that one might hope for, given that uh, arguably from a European perspective, the near-term conventional military threat for the time being is, is Russia. That will probably peak at some point in the next five to 10 years. Uh, and then after that horizon, it, it will be China. And, and so there's that challenge of mm -hmm. you know, preparing for that future while dealing with that immediate context of the next couple of years. And Europeans haven't made a, a whole lot of progress on that. 
Well, it's interesting about what you're saying there is, is that it seems like the Europeans have come to be prepared for the American pivot, which is now a dirty word. But, you know, 10 years ago when, when the Obama administration was thinking we need to get out of the Middle East and maybe hand over Europe to the Europeans so we can focus on the Chinese threat. That was something that everybody saw that Obama was pulling out of Europe and, and wasn't a, a bad thing. But it's looking like now that might be the appropriate division of labor because, again, the Europeans don't necessarily have the capability to send large fleets to hang out in, in Asia for a long period of time. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's a different conversation now because, you know, people do understand that the U.S. has genuinely has a global set of security responsibilities. And that is just not true for Europeans. I, I would argue, you know, people in Paris, uh, people in London who are actually British rather than people in London who are German, um, <laughs> uh, would, pro- would probably think that France and, and the U.K. do as well. But it is really on a different order of magnitude. And so I think that understanding has sunk in, Mm -hmm. which does mean, or that that argument, if you want the US to continue to be committed and interested in European security, the best way to do that is actually through improved European capabilities, not through continued dependencies at the level that they are at currently and, and have been in the past. So I think that division of labor argument, I think now is an argument that is increasingly seen as a potential strength rather than as that fear of abandonment that, mm-hmm. that characterized the, the early days of the then pivot. I'm not sure what the right word is now, but it's definitely not pivot. Um, <laughs> uh, so I think in that sense, Europeans have come a long way. Uh, of course, I mean, you know, depending on how you look at it, the treatment Europeans received during the Trump administration uh, did, of course, make that a stronger argument because while people didn't like being shouted at and, and lectured at, they did understand that really independent of who is U.S. president, and the argument that capabilities within NATO should be so out of balance between the, the North Atlantic or the, the North American contribution and the European contribution would be increasingly difficult to sustain independent of who, who is in the White House. I think that has happened. That development has happened. So I think in that sense, we are in a, in a better place. And really, for most Europeans, the debate is now about what degree of autonomy is desirable and how much is enough when it comes to what Europeans should be able to do uh, by themselves. And it's interesting that you put it in terms of what can they do, because one of the frustrations the Canadians have is the 2% metric, because, you know, as I always say, Greece looks really good in that metric, but we usually don't count Greece as being a great ally, whereas Canada spends less, but shows up more than other folks. And so is there a European conversation about trying to change how we measure contributions? Because again, all these big procurement projects can be lots and lots of money, but if it ultimately doesn't produce capability, what's the point? Yeah, I mean, I think if you if you just look at NATO's European member states for for the moment, you know, at the time that the defense investment pledge was made in 2014 at the at the NATO summit in Wales, the percentage of GDP spent on defense by NATO's European member states was 1.25 percent. That now in 2020 has grown to 1.64. So so the movement is in is in that direction. It's a quite a do, movement. Yeah, so it's well, I mean, of course, you know, 2020 it is against the context of a shrinking economy, but but. <laughs> Uh, nevertheless, it is a movement. There's a move in that direction. Uh, but I do think there have always been voices uh, from Berlin and from elsewhere who have argued, you know what, actually, the input variable is not the important one. The important one is what is the output uh, generated from the spending. And that is, of course, in terms of operational commitments, something that has, you know, where Canada has done better than uh, it's, what is it now? Well, it's still less than 1.5% of, of GDP that is that is being spent uh, on defense. It is about capability output and about capabilities made available to NATO. I mean, you know, Germany always had this policy that pretty much everything is available to NATO. Others, others don't. So what is interesting is that now, the nations or some of the people in the nations that have long been strong proponents of the 2% metric, such as in the UK, have now argued that maybe 2% isn't such a useful metric because because there is, of course, at some point you need to argue, you need to ask yourself, well, if it's 2% of a lot less, is that still a, a useful criterion? So I think people felt it had a mobilizing effect. Mm-hmm. I, I think the real mobilizing effect is, is Vladimir Putin, uh, frankly. Um, so was it wasn't Donald Trump? But, it, was, it was Putin? Uh, it, well, I don't think so because if you look at the history of this, the European defense spending actually started to rise before Donald Trump. Donald Trump was elected, so I'm sure he, uh, you know, to give him that just a, a tiny little bit of credit, you know, not through elegance and powers of persuasion, but nevertheless, he did contribute through a momentum 
towards higher uh, defense spending. But I do think if you ask me whether it's Vladimir or Donald, I would definitely say it's it's Vladimir who, who's been driving it because threat perceptions are just are just up. And Donald Trump has featured in this in the in the sense that people looked at the U.S. commitment and all of a sudden felt, you know what, maybe it isn't as rock solid as we had thought or hoped. Mm-hmm. And therefore, uh, we might actually need to do more. And so you could now say, well, that was always a secret plan. I just don't think so. But in that sense, he has contributed to, to it. NATO has this slightly dirty secret that it pretends in some of its communications that it was really Donald Trump who convinced the Europeans to spend more. And they conveniently start the timeline at when he was uh, elected uh, into office and take the trend from there. It's obviously political messaging for understandable reasons, but the facts are a bit different. As the Europeans look at the United States now, is are they looking at Biden as a return to normalcy or a blip and that they're looking to the future and seeing either Trump back in power or some Trumpist back in power in four years and are really, you know, girding their loins and getting ready for yet another four or eight years of uncertainty and hectoring and, and bullying? <laughs> I think it's a little bit of both, to be honest, uh, and and then and then a little bit of something else, I guess. Uh, I mean, there are lots of people uh, in among European analysts, among European officials, who do think that it is possible that Biden will be a, a one-term president, and afterwards uh, we might be looking into something uh, that isn't much different from the from the Trump period, uh, simply because the U.S. is still a very divided country. And I mean, one of the things that I think surprised many Europeans is how well Trump actually did do uh, in, in in November. And arguably, if he had just done a bit better in the pande- performing in the, against the pandemic, you know, I, I, I would think uh, we might have seen a different result. So uh, Europeans don't rule that out. I think uh, there's so much relief just, just by the sheer fact that Biden is now uh, in the White House. At the same time, the funny thing of that... A dimension or, or that dynamic is always that it immediately gets priced in. You know, uh, there's now there's now someone uh, reasonable and sensible uh, in the White House, so we understand again where the conversation is. Uh, we know what the position is. It is much more predictable. Uh, so that means you know immediately the atmospherics are like so much better. But then if you start talking detail, of course. A lot of the problems are still there about European capability, about burden sharing, mm-hmm. uh, about in, internal uh, cohesion in the alliance. Mm-hmm. You know uh, uh, whether that is Turkey or, 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 or other member states who, who really are moving in a direction that is complicated. So, so all of these things are still there, mm-hmm. and they won't go away. So, so I think there's a lot of hope that we are in a much better place now. But I don't think people think it's just a return to the good old age because I think there's an understanding that that is just genuinely behind us, mm-hmm. uh, and in part because of the overall direction of travel for the, for the U.S. and the, on that global scale that we discussed mm-hmm. a few minutes ago. I think yes, much better place. But I don't think very few people actually um, expect just a return to some sort of golden age of NATO cohesion, where we will all bask uh, safely, uh, uh, you know, in the sunlight after, under the umbrella provided by the U.S. I don't think people uh, expect that. I guess one of the things I, w- I wanted to conclude with is that you're a German hanging out in London. So how, how is Brexit treating you? Well, uh, what is the role of the U.K. now that it's no longer firmly planted in Europe? <laughs> Look, in terms of, of Brexit itself, I think, uh, I mean, you know, personally, I, I have to say uh, I have what, what in the UK is called settled status. So, so my ability to work here and, and move around is, is not affected at all. But, you know, beyond the personal level, um, uh, it is, of course, uh, a, a, big, a big issue. So there are a couple of, a couple of things here. One is that the EU has lost one of its most extrovert member states mm-hmm. uh, in, in foreign and security policy. Obviously, one that in an EU context was always difficult because they didn't, or the Brit, the, the UK, London, London, the government didn't want to proceed uh, at speed at closer European defense cooperation under an EU label. But what I think is important is that the UK was a very valued member when it comes to discussing issues of strategic importance because of the experience, skill, and just position that it would bring. And even to EU missions, the uh, UK contribution was minimal. I think usually maybe around 4% or so of what is already a really small footprint, actually. But it was always valuable. So there is, of course, now that reality that the EU has lost capability, so to speak, has Mm -hmm. lost uh, access to capability. And there is that reality that the Brexit settlement that we have has left the question of security policy largely unsettled. So uh, we we still need to get to uh, an agreement that outlines how the UK 
will get involved in this. So in the meantime, we have a lot of worry about the defense industrial links uh, between the UK and, and Europe. Uh, sorry, and, and well, UK is still in Europe. The, I should say the UK and the remaining EU member states. Uh, so that's, that's a worry. Uh, because the UK is now a third a third country for that for that purpose, uh, and as you know, there are defense industrial links. And a worry in Europe is right now that in in, in EU member states and European NATO members uh, is that the UK might actually lessen its commitment to European security. So that's that's a worry, and and that would be a bit. Uh, upsetting, uh, and it goes back to something you asked you asked earlier about what would that what would that mean for European capabilities and yeah. and what was what was needed uh, and whether really modernization plans add up to anything. And I think the UK and some other European countries are at that moment where they in the UK the the words that are being used here in the UK are you know we are on a, on a journey from uh, sunset capabilities to sunrise capabilities. So basically, getting out of a platform centric force posture to a posture that is that is more informed by you know uh, uh, technology uh, cyber AI resilience questions and, and those kinds of things and the challenge is of course to make it from a sunset to sunrise uh, usually that's a pretty dark and cold place so mm. so the the risk is that you you end up in uh, halfway through just at the moment when Russian military capability will peak Mm-hmm. Uh, in about the mid-20s or so, based on the trajectory that Russian military modernization is on. So I think that's an interesting challenge for Europe. What happens if that happens? Because it, it is it is just uh, obviously a further uh, factor uh, in terms of you know how secure the continent is and what you would need to protect uh, ourselves. So so that's, a, that's another set of knotty issues to think about in 2021. Well, you raised a, a really interesting issue that I'm, I'm curious about, um, which is the status of Russia these days. Well, through enf- enhanced forward presence and all the other reassurance missions were going on in Eastern Europe and the increase in European defense spending and the end of the American withdrawal from the continent. Do we have Russia pretty well boxed in in terms of conventional warfare? So we just have to worry about the hybrid and online stuff. Is Are things pretty stable out there in, on the Eastern Front? Or are, is there stuff much more that we need to do to make sure that the Russians are deterred? I would say we need to do more as as Europeans and and as NATO in in, in general. I mean, Russia is introducing more modern military systems, conventional military systems, perhaps on a more modest scale than than some of the grander plans uh, suggest. I mean, and there are problems in fielding new generation equipment, the uh, Amarta family of armored vehicles, the uh, Su-57 combat aircraft. And the emphasis for Russia at the moment is on modernizing existing platforms and integrating a smaller number of new weapon systems than they had imagined they would. But nevertheless, if you look at Russia over the last 15 to 20 years, I would argue that Russian military modernization since 2008, since the war with Georgia, has been probably the one successful Russian reform program that that exists. And the Russian armed forces might not have always gotten what they wanted, but they pretty much got what they need uh, in Mm -hmm. terms to be a credible military actor in Russian vicinity with some mm. limited projection capability. And that is a worry. So any, any scenario that, uh, that is built around you know, a, a limited conventional military operation at speed mm. that then you know, does some sort of grabbing of a bit of NATO territory and then turns into a Russian position of come get us if you're hard enough. And by the way, we have lots of nuclear weapons. Yeah. That is still a big challenge uh, mm. for NATO. Because if NATO doesn't have the coherence and the guts to respond to that, I would argue NATO is over um, mm. uh, if, if, if that happens. If NATO tries and fails, NATO is also over. So, you know, that's, that's, a, that's not a good position. No, uh, so, so I think, you know, Russians are not 10 feet tall, but, but they have made some real progress. And they are now, they now have the most capable uh, armed forces that they've had since the demise of the Soviet Union. Mm. And it's, it's on a Russian scale, it's not on a Soviet scale, but nevertheless, mm-hmm. that is, uh, I think that should continue to be a, a worry to European defense planners, because in some, in some areas, uh, Europeans are outgunned, outranged, and, and then also vulnerable to that hybrid element that you, sure. that you mentioned. Uh, one last question, which was, I'm curious as to whether there are any military lessons, you know, I when we have new conflicts, we have new technologies. Are there are there lessons that drones are way more important than we thought they were, or is it just that our means were less competent than we thought? You know, what what's sort of the take home lesson from that conflict? Yeah, I think one needs to be uh, a bit careful in in trying to generalize from what is a fairly particular set of circumstances. Mm-hmm. 
both in the conflict itself, the geography of, of the of the conflict, and then and then the capabilities of the actors involved. So I know some people have already declared that, that this is the new age and and this is this is how everything will be from here on mm -hmm. out. I don't agree with that. I think I think there are some valuable valuable lessons in there in terms of the challenge of you know providing a for example uh, an air and missile defense uh, capability uh, that covers the the entirety of the or, or most of the threat vectors such as UAVs or loitering munitions or or whatever it is which were of course used with pretty devastating effects in 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 pieces and if that air defense element isn't there mm -hmm. then armor becomes pretty vulnerable but uh, that doesn't mean armor has lost its utility on the on the on the battlefield i think that you know people jump ahead a bit mm -hmm. a bit far but uh, it does of course show a the utility of uh, UCAFs of, of combat UAVs, uh, and it does show the vulnerabilities that uh, arise when you have gaps in your capability but but i i would be a bit cautious to say this is uh, we have seen you know the the conflict of the future mm -hmm. uh, on on that battlefield uh, i think there are lots that could be done to change that outcome with, with you know um if, if people thought about it so uh, i'd be cautious mm -hmm. uh, it's a definitely an interesting case study we have written one or two things about it as well but i think there's a bit of hype going on in terms of the centrality of uh, uninhabited uh, aerial vehicles actually one of the trends we are seeing is that whole transition is actually going much slower than people thought and uh, mm -hmm. we'll have manned combat air you know uh, i would assume well in the into the 2040s uh, and and possibly beyond so while it is interesting to talk about what you know all the things that are happen happening is also interesting to sometimes look at what isn't quite happening yet and that big push out of manned combat air into un uninhabited is proceeding much slower than people expected and, and predicted. Well, that's good news for the Canadians because we might actually get manned aircraft by the time that it's no longer uh, <laughs> <laughs> a thing. I really want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us today, Bastian. Uh, it's really informative to get your perspective. Thanks for your work that you put into the to the military balance. It's uh, it's the Bible for those fo for folks who study, well, contemporary strategic studies and try to figure out the lay of the land. That's good so, to hear. Thank you. That's very kind. No, it was a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. As I hinted before in my conversation with Steph, one of my recommendations this week is Bill and Ted Face the Music. It's not a great movie. Some would say it's not even a good movie, but it is a movie. And it is also one that plays on our nostalgia for the past that Keanu Reeves jumped back into this role that, that helped launch his career uh, long, long ago. And so Bill and Ted travel through time in order to create a song that will unify all of humanity, all of the world, all of the universe, essentially, and save time. So it's fun. Again, maybe not the best movie, but it's a fun movie. The second thing I've been watching is Invincible. It's an animated superhero show on Amazon. It has the best voice cast. Uh, J.K. Simmons, who is a, a particular favorite of ours, is essentially the Superman of the show. And he has a son and his son is discovering his powers. So it's really about his son discovering his powers. His son is played by Stephen Yoon of The Walking Dead. And he's the, the character is a teenager and it becomes more complex. And it's uh, both funny and dark. The dialogue is really good. And again, it's got a lot of really good actors playing the various voices. So I recommend Invincible on Amazon Prime. And I just started reading Harlan Cobden. Harlan Cobden is a mystery thriller author. And his protagonist, Myron Bolitar, is a sports agent. And I'm not exactly sure how a sports agent will be getting into multiple mysteries. But this first one is about a client whose girlfriend disappeared. And so I'm into it. So that's my recommendation for this week. He's written a lot of books. It's always fun to discover an author who's written 20 or 30 books. So that way you can just plow right through them rather than having to wait for the next book to come out and the next book to come out. So Bill and Ted Face the Music, Invincible on Amazon, and Harlan Cobden, uh, the author of many mysteries and thrillers. Anything to keep our attention off of the madness outside our doors. Be well in this crazy time. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments. And so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS or email them to CDSN.RCDS at Outlook.com. Thank you.